and welcome to the Real Estate Matters podcast. I'm Stuart Norton with the Alabama Center for Real Estate at the University of Alabama. And today we have Rhett Loveman. Uh, Rhett is the founder and owner of Terramore in Birmingham. Uh, welcome to the show, Rhett. Thanks, Stuart. Uh, great to be with you today, and I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk with you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm glad we were able to connect uh, through Grayson Glaze, I believe, uh, our director. That's correct. That's correct. I'd actually served on the um, the Acre uh, Council years ago, and then, you know, life happens, and I, I, I was off of it for a few years, but now I'm back on and glad to be on. So it's Wonderful. Great. Yeah. So, what, yeah, welcome back to the Leadership Council. Rhett is a, Rhett's a member. Um, have about just a little bit about the council. I have about 100 members, uh, all in all, um, and kind of trending up. We've had a lot of, uh, a lot of people rejoin and a lot of new members, and so uh, so I'm glad to have you back uh, on the Leadership Council and also uh, the, the articles. Check out, uh, check out the articles uh, that Rhett has done, one so far, but uh, will be a series. And, uh, and so that's good reading there. Thanks. Uh, I enjoyed that, Rhett, and I think uh, our readers will as well. Thank you, Stuart. Yep, it was a pleasure and look forward to doing the other ones. For sure. All right. So, uh, so Tara Moore, tell us a little bit. Uh, we're going to get into your background in just a minute and just, you know, how you but, but why don't, well, we'll get into both, uh, but just tell us a little bit about Tara Moore, uh, and then how you, uh, you know, in your background leading to your current role. Yeah, absolutely. So for, for many years, um, I've been in the land acquisition entitlement and development business working for, uh, several national corporations, um, which was great work and got to learn the business over, over the past two decades. And so, um, Earlier this year, I branched out on my own to start my own acquisition, entitlement, and development business, and hence Terramore. And, you know, we have three buckets, really, that we we focus on. One is the acquisition side, where, you know, uh, a builder or a client will hire us to go find a specific piece of land in a specified geographic area, like a city limit, or maybe within uh, the boundaries of a school district zone, if they're looking for to do a development in a particular, you know, district that they're comfortable with. Because it definitely as, matters, yeah, your site selection, because... Absolutely. Yeah, the absolutely. school districts and, and even the, the neighborhoods within the school districts, um, I, I find it kind of fascinating, honestly. That's right. And, you know, you got to take into a lot of other accounts, you know, topography, are there wetlands and or blue line creeks on the street, you know, on the property. So all those things play in. And so, you know, obviously we have the software, we can kind of identify those things up front so that a client doesn't go into a lot of expense just to find out that the project doesn't work, even though it's in the perfect area. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Especially around Birmingham, there's a lot of uh, rough topography where you just, I guess you just can't build, or if you do, it's just cost prohibitive. That's right. You know, you may run into rock or other issues or just just the sheer grading of the site. So, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's, you know, that's one aspect. The other is entitlement. So we work with um, clients, you know, some we've had property owners hire us to get their property rezoned because obviously there's value in that. And the yes. property owner recognizes that. So if you take the zoning from an agricultural to a you know residential garden home, zoning, you've just added value because that's more appealing to more buyers. You know, they, indeed, they, right. Versus. Yeah. They don't have to go through the time and the expense of doing that. And they're willing to pay, compensate the property owner for having already done that. Okay. So, so yeah, that, that I was, I was going to say the entitlement process, that's something I don't honestly don't know much about, but now I kind of, I, I get it a little, so it mainly has to do with zoning. Any other aspects? Uh, I'm sure there are with entitlement. Yes. Yeah, so entitlements, you know, can go anything from zoning to obviously 
you know, you'll need a, a preliminary development budget to see if the project's feasible. These are all things that you would do during a due diligence period if you're developing the site right. um, so that, you know, before you close on it, so you know what you're getting. And you get back into, you know, geotechnical assessments where you're going and punching holes in the ground to see what the soil composition is like. Right. Um, and into what we discussed, you know, U.S. Army Corps of Engineer permits. Are there areas that the U.S. government claims as jurisdictional waters that you have to go get permits for if you're going to impact them? So there's a whole world out there. Yes. And so, like, I'm just thinking of, like, the Birmingham suburbs, like, say, Mountain Brook, for example. Uh, I, makes me think of... Um, Gosh, the creek that runs right through the heart of you know, Mountain Brook Park. Is it Shades Creek, I believe? Yeah, it is. Correct. And so uh, just kind of can you expand on that a little bit or any other? Or what are some areas? I mean, because there's a lot of water, obviously, in Birmingham. Uh, and I remember actually a hydraulic map. Uh, I'm kind of a map nerd, but I remember seeing this hydraulic map of America. And I've always heard that Alabama has more rivers per square mile than any other state. And looking at that hydraulic, which has all the tributaries and major, you know, basically any creeks uh, and rivers. And it's just Alabama is just covered up with them. And so I would imagine the Birmingham suburbs are literally, I mean, they, I've seen them all. I've played, you know, as a kid, that's where, you, you know, playing that's in the right. creek. We had one in our backyard in uh, Cherokee Bend. but Yeah, that's right. So you can't just go and develop over those creeks, um, even if they're very small. There's. Right. The U.S. government has different classifications and they all operate through the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. For whatever reason, that's the yeah. that's the agency that issues the permits. But if you're going to go and develop a site and you're going to impact what they call a, a jurisdictional stream or wetland, you have to go and buy mitigation credits to offset the impact you're doing. So, for example, there are mitigation banks out there that that uh, agree to preserve land forever to offset what you're doing on your site. So if you're impacting, let's say a thousand linear feet of stream, well, you have to go buy a credit from a bank that will preserve that thousand linear feet of stream on another property, you know, that's obviously off site from your property, if that makes sense. Okay. To offset it somewhat, uh -huh. I guess. Yeah, that's right. So there's a lot of things that go into entitlements. I mean, it's a pretty broad net. Well, uh, that's, uh, that's very interesting. And I, that, that when, uh, when we were first, you know, and I saw your company and I like how you spell out those three areas of focus. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I got two out of three, a pretty decent understanding, but I look forward to learning more about entitlements. And, uh, and then obviously the final component uh, is a development, right? That's right. So, you know, some clients hire us to manage their sites uh, for development, you know, especially if they're not, um, don't have boots on the ground in North Alabama, maybe they're a regional home builder outside of the area. Yeah. And so, you know, we can manage that process for them. And we're also looking at doing our own sites, our own development sites um, for builders, builder clients. Um, so that's something that we have in the works. Okay. Well, good stuff. And so, um, and so tell us just a little bit about your background. Did you, uh, are you from Birmingham? I'm from Gadsden originally. Oh, cool. And, um, yeah, yeah. I've been in Birmingham, you know, for many years, I guess 20 years. But no, I'm from Gadsden originally. And, and my, my dad had a, a real estate company in Gadsden, uh, Loveman Realty, for, for, gosh, 50 years. Yeah. And so it, real estate's kind of in my blood. And well, um, yeah. it's always fascinated me. Okay. Yeah, I believe I have, I, I possibly met some, um, some, well, anyway, no, I'm thinking of someone, uh, I'm thinking of Lovejoy in uh, St. Clair County. That's right. 
That's St. Clair County. Yeah. St. Clair, but just, you know, that's basically, you know, you're a little bit northeast of there. So that's right. That's well, that's right. really yeah, cool. Yeah, just, uh, Gadsden's a cool, I, I, dude, we got to talk about Gadsden for a minute, you know? Uh, what, uh, and interestingly enough, like, you know, because we follow new home sales and Gadsden, it will, there's like three a month, you know, according to the sales data that, you know, there might be a few that aren't, but uh, I guess, is there much new construction happening in Gadsden? I'm thinking there's really not, but, I'm, you know, it's got to be a little bit. There's not. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you follow the new, the building permit data. And I think Edwalk County is always pretty low on the totem pole as far as yeah. new building permits. Especially but for metro that, areas. That's right. That's right. But that being said, you know, actually there wasn't, there are two national home builders building some small subdivisions in Etowah County right now. Oh, cool. And I mean, they're, they're, when I say they're small, you know, maybe a handful of lots, not a big, right. big thing, but you know, so I guess they've benefited like everybody else from this boom. We, this construction boom. We sure. Well, and Gadsden seems to be, you know, I mean, it's, it's somewhat isolated yet. It's still like quite connected and close your proximity to the rest of Alabama. You know, I mean, it's all interstate to Birmingham. Um, yeah, I guess getting to Huntsville is probably some, yeah, Atlanta, Huntsville. exactly. Uh, Aniston, which, you know, and with the Honda plant down there and Aniston, I've just, and also just the topography. I mean, that's a beautiful place. I love that waterfall. It's a lot flatter than Birmingham, generally speaking. You have some pretty good flat areas up in Gadsden that you don't have down here in Birmingham. Gotcha. Yeah, because because uh, Birmingham, I mean, it's, you know, it's pretty much in the foothills of that. You know, it's kind of the tail end of the Appalachians. Uh, I think they technically run a little bit into Tuscaloosa County, uh, but but yeah, but, I, but Gadsden, one of my favorite places in Alabama, is honestly, uh, it's in Steele. You know, about 15 minutes shy of Gadsden, if you're coming on the interstate from Birmingham, you can probably guess where I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, I know where Steele is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but uh, in Steele, up on Chandler Mountain, um, Horsepins 40, uh, former rock climber here. I used to do a lot of bouldering. Um, but anyway, uh, have you ever been up to Horsepins? I haven't. That's funny. But for years, um, my parents lived on the south side of Gadsden. Uh, and so I'd always, it was closer yep. to get off at the steel exit than the Gadsden exit. So for years, oh, I'd okay. get off at the steel exit to go visit them. And I, 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 Chandler Mountain's right there to your left. I mean, it I, you is. Know, you, yeah, you can't miss it. It's awesome. You can't miss it. It's a pretty big mountain, but I've it never is. been up there. So I'll have to go go, go check it out, man. Uh, and I'm going to do some free advertising for Horse Pins 40 just because there are some of the, it's just really cool. But, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's some of bouldering is just a form of rock climbing where you don't use ropes. Uh, I'm not sure how familiar you are with that, but, uh, but it's just this, it's a boulder field and it's honestly some of the best, uh, bouldering in, it's honestly some of the best bouldering in America. People come from all over. So it's on private land and it's called horse Pins 40 because of, you know, of course the deed, uh, but it referred, they had like, it's, some of it's flat. It was like the farming 40, the something else 40, and then the horse pins 40. These rock for, it basically it's kind of a large U shape and you could corral horses there back in the day. Um, and it was actually a hideout during the Civil War. Uh, it's a natural fort. But anyway, it's just, and I'll, I'll, I'll spare everyone. I know everyone doesn't love sandstone like I do, but it's, <laughs> it's, the rocks look like, it looks like you're on a different planet. Everything, you can just see the, 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 Eight, they're estimated to be 500 million years old. The amount of time that sandstone has been above ground. And so the erosion, the wind and water erosion over time has just worn them down. It looks, uh, I mean, they're just very rounded and there's, I've only seen, and there's sandstone outcroppings all over Alabama and it's really good climate. And there's some in Birmingham, but they're just not quite, they're old being in the Appalachians, but they're not 
that old. And so they're just, but horse pens is just, it's just amazing. And it's on private land. You can pay 20 bucks to camp there for a, for a 24 hour period, you know, to a night. And then the next day, uh, you know, they have, it's a primitive camp. It's kind of like glamp or car camping. You know, I'm not going to say glamping because it's definitely not glamping, but you know, they have electricity and running water. They have showers and bathrooms, they have a little cafe and general store you can go in and, uh, and it goes over to the brow. And so they have a lookout where you look out over, you know, looking South from Chandler mountain. Uh, and it's just down upon farmland. It's kind of undeveloped. You see a few houses here and there on the other ridges, but, but anyway, horse pens 40 is a really cool place. Uh, my, my kids love it. Cause they just climb, you know, climb around on the rocks and literally last when we were there last, we saw a couple that had driven from Ontario. Uh, they were super big into climbing. They drove from Ontario to go climbing at horse pens 40. And we happened to camp next to them. They were super cool. But, uh, but yeah, go check it That's out. Awesome. Uh, yeah, just, and, uh, and it's actually an amphitheater as well. You probably heard of red rocks out in Denver. Uh, but this would be kind of a mini red, red rocks or even a redneck red rocks. I say that lovingly, <laughs> but it's a, there's the natural amphitheater there. And, uh, my parents used to get, my dad said he went to a bluegrass festival up there in the seventies. Um, and they still, they'll, they'll do like an arts and crafts fair and, but they still, they, they actually have a music festival as well. It's pretty small, but it's just a cool place. And so. That's great. I'm going to take, well, I've got four kids, so that'll be a good little trip for us to make up there and do a They'll love it. And, yeah. And it was 45 minutes. You can be there in 45 minutes uh, from Birmingham. And so, I mean, it's just awesome. But, uh, well, that's cool about Gadsden. And so, uh, so we'll get back, just kind of wrap up your background. And so, yeah, so you grew up in Gadsden and you've been in Birmingham for how long? For 20 years. Um, of course, before that, obviously, I, I went to the University of Alabama. And um, so, uh, but yes, I, I settled in Birmingham and this is you know where we were raising our family. Awesome. Um, and yeah, so I'll just go ahead and date myself here. I was high school 98 when I finished. Uh, when did you finish high school? 96. 96. All right. Yeah. So we're about the, about the same. Yeah. Got the, that was, uh, that's, that's why I was two wheeling into the office today is, uh, <laughs> just summertime with the kids. It's fun, but it's busy. And, uh, and I love it. You know, I mean, it's, you know, I got, um, we just had a lot, I was riding, dropping kids off all over town. Uh, and one's going to the pool with some friends and others at like a summer day camp that they love. And so it's just sort of, it's a fun time. It is. I'm sure you're doing the same, you know, with four kids. Yeah. You notice when your kids get older into grade school and, and beyond, you do, you appreciate the summertime because it's a, yeah. It's a little bit slower and you get, you get some, like you said, some, you get to do some neat things. So, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, well, that's great, man. Uh, and UA and yeah, one thing about, uh, just about, you know, you know, acre, obviously, you know, we're a part of the, you know, business school here, uh, at Alabama, but, uh, but I noticed I was on our CCAP website. That's a collegiate career assistance program where we, just try to help connect, you know, students in real estate to uh, employers uh, looking to hire students uh, with business and real estate degree, uh, you know, business majors, you know, with a real estate minor. Um, but I noticed, uh, I believe you have a, um, how many, you have a few, uh, you've, you've hired some uh, people from Alabama recently. Uh, how many, uh, how big is your staff? Well, no, so my, st all, everybody that I have is, is, a, uh, is all staff. In other words, I just, I hire them like on an hourly basis, but it's funny that you bring that up because one thing that Grayson and I talked about is as we do grow and we, you know, are looking to maybe bring on some full-time staff, you know, he, he said, look, I got a great resource here with all the guys, that I, guys and gals that I have going through the, uh, the program here. 
And so he said, you know, even if you need, this is for everybody, you know, if you need someone to do just some hourly work for you, or you need an intern or you need, you know, he said, we've got, we've got the, we've got the folks who are very bright. So that was absolutely. Yeah. And internships has come a long way, you know, it's always worked like in the summertime. Uh, but I never really had like an intern. I would just basically go get a job, you know, something I was somewhat interested in, but you know, I was you know, making like six fifty an hour or something like, you know, I mowed grass out at the country club of Birmingham, uh, a couple of summers, uh, high school and early college, you know, talking straight up manual labor, not exactly career development, but, uh, I've always been interested in golf and, you know, and I guess it helps me mow my grass now, but <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But, but the kids these days, a lot of them are very much career focused with internships, you know, Dallas, a lot of kids going to Dallas uh, from the university of Alabama, uh, Atlanta, Birmingham, of course, but it's just cool to see them, you know, cause they're, they're career focused, um, to a pretty impressive degree. Uh, and so, yeah. Uh, and yeah, so check it out, check out the website. Uh, if you're an employer, if you're a student, it's a uh, CCAP acre, or I'm sorry, acrecap.com or just Google acre CCAP. Uh, so yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, so the current market and just like, and so developed lots, uh, it seems like, you know, land prices seem to be up, you know, cause everything's sort of go, it, Big surprise, right? Land prices go up during a time of inflation. But uh, but tell us a little bit about developed lots and what the market looks like. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's interesting in that developed lots have, you know, when we came out of the Great Recession many years ago, um, there was just such a, a glut of, of developed lots on the ground. You know, you had every Tom, Dick and Harry had, you know, become a developer and put lots on the ground. And then when things went belly up, these lots just sat there that, you know, a lot of them went through some type of foreclosure process. And over the years, they've been, you know, chewed through. You've had builders come along who, um, in the good times, who have who have taken those developed lots and built houses on them. And of course, they haven't really been replaced. So for example, in 2013, about 10 years ago, there were roughly 18,000 developed lots on the ground in the Birmingham metro area. Today, it's one half of that. There's 9,000. And if you just look at the building permit numbers, so for example, Birmingham's uh, building permits uh, for last year, I think were around just below 4,300 building permits. So obviously for every building permit, you got to have a lot to put that house on. And, And granted, there's some multifamily in there, you know, it's not strictly small single family, but, you know, just using the rough math, if you have 4,200 building permits or 4,300 building permits and you only have 9,000 lots, that means you only got roughly 2,000, two years worth of lots on the ground. Okay. So So they go quick relatively. They go quick. And I just, you know, I think there's a really, there's a huge undersupply and I, I think it, part of it was people were so gun shy from the experience we had before coming out of yes. the Great Recession. The, the chart, really... yeah, I, one of my favorite charts is just building statewide building permits, uh, but just how they just went from a massive peak in 2006 to like, I mean, 30,000 to like 10,000 statewide or even, you know, maybe even 6,000. I mean, it's a, it's a very impressive chart anyway. It's just, or there's not, it's just a lot in that chart. There is. And then you've just noticed that it's steadily gone back up. It and has, of course, we yeah. had the recent spike with, you know, during the two COVID years. And and so what you've got now is a situation where, 
you know, you've got a healthy, I mean, relative, let's say healthy housing market. You've had a healthy housing market. We don't know where it's really going now, but you don't have the, you know, the developed lot inventories not really kept pace with the housing, uh, the housing that's gone. Yeah. Yeah. The resale market. Yeah. The ton. Yeah. People, um, that's a good point. And, and when it comes to like kind of building on what you said earlier and the new home construction site selection, because a lot of the, you know, the desirable suburbs, you know, Hoover has some room to grow, but I mean, even Hoover's getting kind of built out, but like Homewood, Vestavia, Mountain Brook, I mean, it's just like how much infill is left, you know, it's like the last little slices are going. Yeah, there's very little infill left in those areas. And even Hoover's, like you said, is really almost tapped out. And then, you know, even Trustful, yeah. the Trustful area and the McCullough area, you don't have current supply will not meet the 12 month demand in these tighter markets. So you're, you're really seeing a situation where 12 months from now, sure, you have developments in the in the works and they're they're obviously going to alleviate some of that pressure. But you really need a lot more of development activity going on, because if you just do, you know, doing the math over the next five years, let's say Birmingham does stay steady at around forty three hundred permits per year. You're going to need over 20,000 lots on the ground to meet that demand. That makes sense. Yeah, that's I've never really looked at it in uh, in those terms. And I'm glad we're talking uh about, you know, because I've heard that term a lot, you know, developed lot inventory. And what I'm kind of, you know, gathering is that there's just a lot more, you, you know, you think of developing lots and you just think, oh, you just scrape the, you know, you scrape off the ground, you know, you put in a road. <laughs> that's it, right? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, and, and that's a very... Obviously, there's so much that goes into it. You there's know? so much that goes into it. I mean, it's a really a two-year process. So from the time that you identify a site and, you know, you start going through that entitlement process, which is getting the rezoning, getting the engineer drawings, you know, getting all your I's dotted and T's crossed, making sure that the project works from a development number standpoint. And city approval, of course. I guess you have to start with that, right? If you don't have the city approval. That's right. So all these things from the time you, you know, you, you identify a site to the time that you have a final plat and you can start building homes on that site, it's about a 24-month process. Okay. Yeah, so... There's a lot that goes into it because the first the first of those 24 months, the 12 months is entitling it, getting the city approvals, getting all that. The second 12 months is actually developing and going and putting the roads and the utilities in that will right. you know service the homes. Yeah. Um, are most of the projects you work on, are they on city sewer systems? Yeah, most of them are just because that's you know what the builders prefer. I mean, obviously right. some builders do septic tanks and do it very well, but your majority of your builders just sewers just a much easier or yeah because density you know uh I, I like how the suburbs are kind of trending towards higher density and uh that's something i talk about a good bit on the show here and where i live in tuscaloosa is a classic example of that the towns uh started in 06 uh 440 lots and the last lots are being built on here in 2022 for a development that started in 2006 and uh, and speaking of timing, uh, you know, quite a time to launch a pretty ambitious. <laughs> uh, but but hats off uh, to Chris Hayslip with his vision there, uh, because now this is uh, and then next door to us. I'm not sure how familiar you. Well, yeah, going to UA. I'm sure you're pretty familiar. But this is all in the city limits of Tuscaloosa. Great schools. Rock Quarry Elementary is where our kids go. But next door in Highgrove, and this is near Sokol Park, uh, also in the city. 
Um, but they have plans that call for up to 800 houses, you know, by the final phase, you know, or up to 800 lots can be developed there. And they're putting up houses like, I mean, cause our kids play sports right in the fields, right beside it. Um, and you know, it's just almost like a new house. I see a new house, you know, going up the framing almost every time I'm there. It's just fascinating. And really in, in amenities too, you know, they, uh, over in high, they, they have a pickleball court. I'm so jealous. My, I, my neighbors <laughs> in Highgrove, their HOA put a pickleball court in and, uh, I'm trying to invite myself to go play currently. So, <laughs> you know, pickleball courts have become a big, uh, amenity in new neighborhoods. They're really popular. And that's Absolute, funny that you yeah. say that. And that rock quarry area that you're talking about, um, that that's one of those infill areas, I would say, you yes. know, where you've, you've got, You've got great schools. You got access to everything close by, and and it's just you know you you hit the nail on the head. What a what a that was a very uh, smart thing to do to go get those number of homes approved that you can just build out over the years, and exactly. you don't have to worry about you know going back through a rezoning. You've already got your approvals, and it, and it really started a trend uh, because. Uh, talking to like a, a friend of mine that grew up in Tuscaloosa, he actually, uh, he grew up, uh, they lived in the yacht club at, at North river. Yep. Uh, but he said that was, uh, where the CVS and the Publix is now. I mean, it's just a classic suburban, you know, high traffic intersection with a, a strip mall with the Publix, you know, a couple of banks, uh, on the, the corner, two gas stations. And then the final corner is being, you know, it's still being developed the commercial side of it. But he said that was a four way stop sign. This is where rice mine road, uh, intersects with Watermelon Road going across the spillway, Lake Tuscaloosa. He said that was a four-way stop sign when he was a kid back in the early 90s, you know, mid-90s. Oh, yeah. And now it's just like the heart of suburbia. Yeah, I mean, I can remember being at Alabama and going over there sometimes, like you said, going over the spillway over to the uh, yacht club uh, side of the the lake. And it, I, I don't know if it was a four-way stop sign. There may have been a red light there, but there certainly wasn't the Publix and all that other yeah, stuff there. Yeah, and, uh, and he said a pot like uh, – pizza delivery but he said general a general rule of thumb when he was a kid is the pizza delivery companies they would not go beyond that intersection so <laughs> so everyone living you know out that way had to, i guess drive in and pick it up uh but yeah it's just cool to see the path of progress and where it is because there's pretty much you know at, and not just alabama but across the country especially you know in the sunbelt region but you know the suburb you know the cities and suburbs are thriving you know many of them are growing uh, and you can, I remember I had a really good, uh, econ teacher in high school. Uh, and I've always just kind of been fascinated with, I, I, I took a few econ classes. I didn't major in it. I probably should have. Um, but I've always found it fascinating. But one thing I remember her stressing was that if you see new home construction or renovation in an area, it's a sign of investment. It's a sign of progress, you know, on and on. It's just kind of a, it's a good sign. You want to see your neighbors improving their homes. You know, and it makes me just think of Crestline uh, and many other in Hoover, you know, and all, you know, where, where you see those homes being put built. I mean, it's it's not like they're just rolling the dice. There's a two year process where they, you know, select. It's just pretty cool. You know, it's a, uh, I always liked that. I thought that's, a, you know, a good indicator of the health of an area of areas housing. That's right. And, and, you know, these, these, you're right. When they, they take the time and the money to go and put in these developments um, you're exactly right. They're, they're investing in that community and those homes are going to be nice new homes, which are going to have their own families move in there. And of course they just, they just continue to, uh, help the whole situation because it's more customers for the grocery store and for the yep. local, 
you know, businesses. So it, it is a, it is something that feeds off each other. Right. Yeah. And, and like, as they say in the commercial world, the retail follows the rooftops, you know? And so eventually at some point, you know, you'll have some commercial development, you know, to, to fill the need, you know, just for the needs of the people in the area. So it's just a cool, uh, pretty cool all around. Um, and so anything else about developed lots? Well, I just think there's a few high, think, high points to hit on while we're on the subject is, you know, there's there's not enough development capacity right now. There, In other words, there just aren't enough people doing it. There hasn't been a lot of money flowing into it over the years. And I think it's just because of what happened after the Great Recession. The banks were just shy on lending in, in the development yes. world. And last but not least, something that we've just kind of touched on is, you know, a lot of these cities, um, municipalities, and I guess even some counties that have zoning is they've really put the pinch on density. So whereas, you know, they may have allowed uh, a 40 foot lot in the past, now their minimum lot size might be a 70 or an 80 foot lot. So they're really taking another hard look at their zoning regulations Yes, and they're making the lot sizes they're doing away with the really small lot sizes, which does impact the development budgets. Cause think about it. If you go from, you know, you used to be able to do a 40 foot lot. Now you have to do an 80 foot lot. You've, you've basically doubled your lot size and you've lost that number of lots. That's interesting. I thought it would be trending the other way. It's not there. And I think a lot of it is, you know, there's the pressure to maintain, um, prices in an area and so the you know the local the local zoning boards and the local city councils is there's a bit of a not in my backyard mentality where they acknowledge that affordable there is an affordable housing crisis and that you know we do need homes for you know all all different types of people on the socioeconomic ladder but it's kind of like well let's let someone else deal with that we don't want to you know yeah yeah, there's other communities but why that's right and, and no one's really taken the charge yet to, to, to kind of, so the point being is they're really going in the opposite direction when it comes to their zoning regs, as opposed to allowing more dense, they're, they're really going to less dense neighborhoods. Yeah. Well, and it also makes me think, cause like, uh, just growing up in Birmingham, but, um, like Homewood, you know, some of the older parts of Birmingham, like, you know, Homewood and pockets of Crestline, uh, but you know, you think home sizes have just gotten bigger over time. I mean, back in the fifties, like, I think like, uh, like a two, one, <laughs> you know, that's right. like 1100 square feet, like a two bedroom one. But I mean, that would have been an average size house in Homewood or Crestline or, you know, Vestavia. Um, well, Vestavia may be a little bigger cause it was developed later, but, but generally it just home sizes who lives in a two, one these days. I mean, it's, it's like a three, two is the bare minimum, uh, for what you can build. That's right. And I guess that kind of corresponds with, a, you know, bigger house, bigger lot. Yeah. I can't think of one new home construction company that builds a 2-1. You're, exactly. you're right. I mean, the, the smallest they build is a 3-2. And even then, you know, I think really most people prefer bigger than that. So exactly. Right. Yeah. It's going to be, yeah. And you got your half baths and whatnot, which didn't even exist, you know, or the concept, you know, you didn't have many half baths being built in the 50s. Uh, but yeah, and so, and also, and it's also meeting consumer demand, you know, because, uh, you know, consumers, they, they, they want their space, even in the suburbs and, uh, or wherever they are, you know, uh, I'm sure an average home size right now, if you took, you know, we, I don't have the square foot data, we have the home sales, I could find it somewhere else possibly, but, uh, but what would you estimate the average square footage of just, a you know, a new development, you know, new of a new home construction in the, in the city? Um, I would say, you know, and this is 
most of the production. And that's not your area. I just want. I just wanted to know if you. Sorry to cut yeah, you off. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's a good question. I would say, and this is maybe not in the heart like the Homewood, the Mountain Brooks. This may be more out on the you know four fifty nine outside perimeter. Yeah. But I would say most of your new home construction builders are building on average a 2,200 to 2,400 square foot house. So they're, I mean, you know, they're, they're pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's plenty of, we, uh, that's, that's a perfect size home for like a young couple, uh, even, um, you know, and then you start having kids. And one thing that of course drives the housing market, you know, of course, demographics and, uh, and we can focus on this a little bit later, but, uh, but yeah, but people outgrow their home. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just life unfolding. You know, you, you start out in that starter home. Um, and then eventually, you know, most people get married, have kids. They're like, well, we need some more space. And so that, of course, drives a lot of, uh, you know, the resale activity uh, and even new home demand to some degree. Uh, but just just the fact that people are always moving, you know, people are always moving. And then at some point, um, you know, they need to downsize, you know, like one thing in terms of housing trends, like baby boomers, you know, uh, have been kind of slow to downsize. And that's one thing that COVID might have had an impact on. Um, in, in that, oh, I'm just going to stay, you know, I'm just going to stay where I am. I'm just going to wait it out. I, we don't have to move. Um, but eventually, you know, I mean, as the baby boomers, you know, start to downsize, that'll, you know, slowly, but surely, you know, it's just like inventory, whether it's de- developed lots or resale homes, uh, resales is finally starting to trend up resale inventory, uh, in the last few months. Uh, as demand has slowed mainly in response to mortgage rates. But, uh, but yeah, but generally speaking, uh, there's some pretty strong demographic tailwinds to carry the housing market. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with uh, younger folks um, because, you know, people that are in their late 20s, early 30s, like, I, I don't, I mean, the generational names, I, I don't, I guess they're too young to be millennials. Maybe they're whatever's beyond the next after that, you know, but, uh, um, they're basically at a prime age where marrying and having kids is happening. That's going to, that's been unfolding for several years and will continue to unfold. That's right. So a lot of young people out there and a strong, a strong job market as well uh, for recent college graduates, relatively strong job market with the labor scarcity. So there's a, you know, so what do you, do you see like a, a crash in housing coming or do you see stable times? What do you think? Well, you know, it's it's anyone's guess when you, I guess, are talking about the recession word, and I know that that's kind of floating around out there, but I don't think, just based on what I'm reading and what I'm seeing in, you know, real time is, I don't think housing is going to bear the brunt of, you know, a recession if it does come, because there's a few things. There's not an oversupply of houses out there. I mean, I think even yep. with the uptick in supply, we're still at below two months of overall supply, which is historically low. Um, like you said, you have the, the folks coming out of their 20s and 30s, which is a big demographic group, who just because you have an inflationary economy, they have jobs and they still are going to be having children. So they're going to need housing. And then the um, other thing is that you don't have the subprime mess you had years ago. So, I mean, the people really that are don't. in homes, what, They learned well from that. They did. And they've done a really good job of keeping that. You know, So the people that are in homes are... Are, are qualified to be in them and they have a great interest rate. So it's not like, you know, you're going to have people, unless we had mass unemployment, you're not going to have all these people putting their houses on the market because they've got a, they've got a good interest rate as they are. And so unless they have to move through, you know, the formation of families or something, right. there's not, there's not pressure on them to go list their house today, which will then have all this glut of inventory on the exactly. market. And that's really where, 
and that's when you know because speaking of you know like interesting charts uh but like yeah just like uh like statewide i do a lot of statewide you know but because it a lot of markets you know reflects every market um and it's a huge a bigger sample size uh but yeah but but home when median sales prices actually went down you know around in alabama it was around 2010 and it was only for a few years and it was rather slight all things considered but it's because of the distress sales and the foreclosures you know anytime you're just under pressure to sell something whether it's a mountain bike or a house i mean it's just like you're not in a you're not in a very good position in terms of bargaining power That's and right. so but i agree with you yeah uh you know, tighter lending standards. Also, your typical homeowner right now, they have a pretty good equity cushion with the the rise in home values, uh, which has been ongoing, but has spiked in the last two years, you know, as kind of the pandemic housing boom unfolded. And, and a lot of it's inflation as well, because, you know, what happens, you know, it's, uh, I remember uh, a, one of, a fellow leadership council member, David Skinner, he's an uh, attorney in Birmingham, uh, but he spoke at uh, an acre event back in the fall of 21 last fall. And he, uh, he summed it up great. He said, uh, he said the house, the house costs more because the money is worth less. Mm-hmm. And then the inverse is also true. You know, if the house is worth less, one good reason is because the money is worth more. And of course, right now with the, you know, nine trillion of stimulus injected, you know, we've, and so the, the money is worth less. That's why the gasoline, the housing, you know, the burrito, <laughs> everything. Yeah. That's why stuff costs more. That's right. And I also found it interesting. I was looking at the acre stats um, before our call and the housing demand for June of 2022, I think y'all had roughly 1700 sales. It was still about a hundred more than June of 2019, the pre COVID levels. Yeah. And you know, still, we've been, yep. We've been in this crazy housing market for the past two years. I would say 2019 was probably the last normal year. So mm-hmm. if you go back to the last quote unquote normal year, we're still above that. You know, indeed, yeah, and that's one that's an interesting, uh, yeah, contrast uh, to the because national sales are basically equal to their pre-COVID levels uh, mm-hmm. and probably tapering down. Uh, you know, just mainly you know interest rates are uh, of course the main factor. Uh, but also affordability because home prices are up, you know, and so that combination of, you know, rising rates and uh, rises in home price, you know, rising home prices, of course, affordability quickly erodes. Um, and we actually did our, our new, our most recent affordability index is out and uh, we calculate an affordability score. But uh, but anyway, but affordability, you know, Alabama is still significantly more affordable. I think our calculations uh, statewide came in at about 140, which means that like someone owning uh, someone, a family earning the median family income for the state of Alabama has 1.4 times the income required to get a loan to buy a median priced home. And that does uh, that does assume a 20 percent down payment, um, which, of course, you know, I know not everybody makes a 20 percent down payment. And just for context, the national score was like 105. And they were both down about 20% from the first quarter. And so affordability, I mean, it's, that's, that's the issue, you know, um, among others, especially for your sure. first-time buyers that don't have that equity that an existing homeowner would have, you know, to fund that down payment or, uh, or to be more uh, in the, you know, in, just don't have as much buying power, you know? That's right. 
That's right. It'll be so, and obviously the inflationary economy doesn't doesn't help that. Right. But again, you know, we the the fundamentals I think are going to uh, housing will take the brunt of it if there I, is indeed a recession. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, our forecast here at the center uh, in terms of sa- sales activity, uh, you know, and when a lot of people you read like the clickbait articles about the housing crash which I'm not a big fan of, but they all talk about just like slowing home sales activity. And then at the very end, they'll be like, oh yeah, but home prices, you know, are still growing. <laughs> and so it's like, when I hear housing market crash, I think falling home value is not necessarily, I mean, slowing sales is a component of that. Uh, but yeah. our forecast at the center, I, I think statewide home sales will be down about five to 10% by year end. And that's from 2021, a very hot year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then home price growth, we've already seen it. It's, it's starting to moderate, uh, price growth at the statewide level. It got as high as like, you know, 15 to 18%. Uh, normally it was always in the single digits. You know, when I started here at acre, I say always, but looking back through the data, it was usually like, you know, you know, six to 8%. Um, and then it finally hit double digits, you know, right around, uh, 2020 with the pan, you know, June, 2020. Um, and then, but now it was uh, it was back down to twelve percent, uh, down from like seventeen and eighteen uh, percent earlier, and that's year over year. Um, but anyway, so I think home price growth will moderate to eight to ten percent by year end. Uh, so home value, home basically, home prices are still going to rise. I think. I mean, that's just my opinion, but just at slower rates of growth. And so I just don't see it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm with you. I think the fundamentals are relative. You know, they're pretty strong, um, and um, I think some, you know, some people just, it's just kind of the nature of the news media, right? You it know, is. there's, uh, and, and there, and there is a likelihood of recession, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna discount that at all, but I think housing will have a somewhat of a soft landing. I agree. And, and it may be, and I heard someone use this term too, that it may be a full employment recession. And I'm not going to say that I know exactly what that means, but it may be a recession that we're not, we haven't seen at least in the past yeah. you know, couple of decades where people still have their jobs. It's just, you know, it's just maybe a little bit different animal than what we've seen. Before. Right. Right. That's a good point. Um, and that's one thing unique about recessions is they're all a little different, you know, they are. <laughs> you got the dot-com bubble of the two thousands. That's kind of the first one I remember is like somewhat as an adult being like 20 at the time. Uh, I remember, you know, reading in history, uh, former history teacher here as well. Uh, I taught middle school and high school history for nine years before, um, deciding I needed to do something else. Uh, but, uh, but always, you know, history is just, it's just interesting. Uh, everyone is a fan. That's one of my theories. Everyone's a fan of history to some degree, whether they know it or not. And it could be as simple as just appreciating a movie like the Godfather set in a different era, you know, right? right. uh, or just having a slight interest in what your parents and family did when they were, I mean, that's every, everything's kind of history. But, but yeah, like the, you know, in the eighties, it was what the savings and loan crisis of 87, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's a stagflation of the 1970s. Uh, there was even a little recession post-World War II with the slowdown in government spending, uh, and the transition to a post-war economy. And so they're all kind of interesting in their own right. And it'll yeah. be interesting to see. And so, yeah, maybe this will be the employment recession. We'll see. Right, right. You never, it's never fun, I guess, living through them, but you're right. There's always, when you look back, you, you see how, oh, well, that was, that recession was different in this way. Indeed. And it makes me think of my grandparents. Um, um, they, 
passed uh, passed away. My granddad. I mean, he lived a great life. He passed away in 07 at like se- age 78, and my grandmother passed away this spring. She was like 92. Uh, but they grew up during the Great Depression, you know, and they it obviously impacted, you know, their upbringing. Um, and I remember visiting their house. I remember my mom always kind of joking, like they're going to have so much food, like no one can eat the amount of food. And it was almost and it possibly had to do with growing up in the Great Depression when having people over with a with just a ridiculous surplus of food just wasn't possible or no one did it. You know, it's just and so it's just yeah. interesting how it, you know, it definitely, definitely shaped their lives. Uh, so. And leaves um, a mark for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and of course, and they would go on to be what's called the greatest generation, you know, um, mm-hmm. and they grew up during the great depression. So, I mean, it's almost like, you know, uh, it's hardship, but it's also, uh, you know, it builds character, I guess you could say, but it's and like you mentioned <laughs> sure earlier, does. it's not fun going through it, but maybe there could be some positive outcomes down the road. That's right. Yeah. And Birmingham, speaking of which, uh, on an earlier episode, we had some guys from New York. Uh, it's a really good episode. Just if y'all want to check out another one, but, um, um, it's, uh, a development company out of New York. Uh, I think, uh, R and D development, but they, uh, anyway, it's three guys from New York, uh, and similar to you, but they focus on development, but they're also, they're mainly architects and builders because their team is basically, uh, a finance guy or a, a deal and finance guy, uh, an architect, and then a builder. Um, but they've done some, uh, they've done some developments in Birmingham and I thought it was pretty cool. They described Birmingham as relatively recession proof in their view, uh, which I thought was interesting. And it made me think like how, to what degree was Birmingham impacted, you know, around 2008 to 2010, you know, they were you know, somewhat, but also that was a time when downtown Birmingham was being, the revitalization kind of hit its stride, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with the, you know, railroad park coming to fruition kind of, you know, and the Baron stadium going completed in 2013. Uh, but I thought that was pretty cool how they, you know, in their view, somewhat recession proof. And, but just think about the drivers of the economy in Birmingham, healthcare, uh, you know, somewhat, I mean, you, you, you're going to need healthcare regardless. Uh, I mean, you know, law and finance and so it's, and, and contrast that to Birmingham that was very impacted by the Great Depression, because back then, you know, the economy was very much more industrial and manufacturing, and we were kind of evolving uh, into more of a service economy. So, That's right. Uh, so, yeah, just very interesting. Um, and so uh, one, a couple other questions, uh, some thoughts I had. Uh, is finding land in Birmingham, like, how do you do that? Uh, and what parts of Birmingham... I'm guessing like the 459 corridor is kind of where a lot of the growth is. That's where the land is. It appears as I drive, you know, home to visit my family. I'm like, yeah, there's still plenty of land, you know, and that's a great corridor right there. It is. And and most of my clients actually, you know, you're right. They're, they're looking primarily outside of the 459 corridor just because inside of 459 has been so developed. And so, um, you know, that's, that's your growth areas, you know, the Shelby counties, and then, you know, you've got Gardendale up North yep. Jefferson County. That's a, another big growth area. Interesting. Of course, Trustful out yep. in the Northeast Jefferson County. And then McCalla, you know, McCalla is so well located with, not only do you have good infrastructure down there with 459, 59, um, and Jefferson County sewer, there's a lot of sewer yep. down there, 
but you're also it's kind of equidistant between downtown Birmingham and you know Tuscaloosa. So if you have one yeah. spouse that works at UAB and one spouse that works, you know, maybe with, for the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, it's kind of an ideal location for them to split the difference. So, you know, that's another really strong area. Exactly. And I, and I can't drive past McAdory High School without thinking about Bo Jackson, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and, cool. and, and I mean, back then, there was nothing out there. And the, now it was the country. Whole, yeah. yeah. And, I, uh, and talk about a fascinating life. I mean, Bo Jackson has led a incredibly, you know. And shout out, you know, I mean, Auburn, they're our rival. You know, I'm a Birmingham Southern grad, you know, so I'm uh, only one in my family not to go to UA, the black sheep, I guess. Uh, but I've always just found Bo fascinating, even as a, you know, just even as an Auburn guy. I'm just one. I'm kind of bummed that we missed out on him. That's a whole story in itself. I'm pretty sure we blew it. I think he wanted to come to Alabama, <laughs> and we basically told him he couldn't play as a freshman, which is really smart, um, <laughs> or couldn't start as a freshman. And the rest is history. But yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, Bo. I mean, that was the country back then. Oh yeah, and he yeah, loves absolutely. to. I mean, he loves to. He's a hunter, you know. That's interesting. I didn't realize he was a hunter. He is, yeah. But he loves bow hunting. Uh, I read something about that in his biography, and back uh, collecting baseball cards. But there was one that said Bow knows bucks, <laughs> and had a picture of him in camo. It was like a, a baseball, like a bonus baseball card, and uh, but it had him in camo. And uh, maybe there, maybe I could find. I know that's in the that's gone, but. Uh, Anyway, just having a little fun here. But uh, but yeah, McCalla, you're right. And so many people in Tuscaloosa, I've talked to so many people, they either live in Birmingham and work in Tuscaloosa or vice versa. Uh, but yeah, but McCalla, yeah, that's a great midpoint. It is. Yeah, it is. And and, and you, now you have the target there and the public's there. So, you know, like we talked about earlier, when the rooftops come, the commercial follows and it just, yep. you know, that's just the proper order of things. And, and it's slowly unfolding, I think, eventually, you know, because uh, once you get below McCalla, you kind of hit a little dead spot um, along 59, you know, in the Mercedes plant. But eventually, like Vance and Brookwood, uh, there's a lot of talk about, you know, like, A, like, it might be some cheap, it, it, that might be where some affordable housing could go. Uh, and people can work in a variety of locations, you know, from that Vance and Brookwood area you know, uh, kind of in the somewhat near the Mercedes plant, you know, and you, and the amenities, I mean, you got Tuscaloosa not too far away. It's, it's kind of the country right now. I mean, the retail's not there, you know, the rooftops nor that there's a little bit of, you know what I'm saying, but I mean, it, I think that will eventually, I think it'll eventually spill down into those areas. Yeah. You're, and you're already seeing, to your point, you're already seeing some residential subdivisions, uh, in those areas, especially around Vance and the Mercedes plant. Yeah. And so, you know, the, you, you those areas will continue to fill in over the years, especially as McCalla creeps down that way towards uh, towards yeah. the, the Mercedes plan. Well, awesome. Well, uh, well, Rhett, this has been uh, this has been a great episode. I'm really glad that uh, that we connected and that you're uh, involved with the center. Um, you know, again, uh, just really, um, it's just really, uh, I just really appreciate it. And uh, it makes things like this happen. And so uh, any final thoughts as we sort of wrap it up here? No, I, I really appreciate your time and giving me the opportunity to come on here and share and just learn from you. And, and, and um, so I look forward to, you know, continuing to work with the center. And, you know, it'll be, a, it'll be an interesting year ahead. We don't know 
what's in store. But um, yeah. as we as we discussed, the fundamentals, I think housing will will weather this recession if indeed it comes. Yeah, uh, pretty well. Pretty yeah, well. and uh, and I guess if we don't know, we'll find out, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So thank you so much, Stuart. I really yeah, appreciate yeah, it. and thank you, Rhett. Uh, I really enjoyed. Uh, I really enjoyed today's episode, especially the entitlement phase. I really, that was something I did not know much about, but I know a little bit more now and uh, just uh, have a lot more respect for the process, you know, of getting those homes built. I thought it was mostly, I thought the headaches were on the construction side. Maybe that's the easy part. <laughs> I think, I think so. I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's really more on the development side where the, yeah. the headaches come in. So anyway, I mean, obviously there's always headaches on other yeah, yeah, side. Yeah, you're putting out fires either way. So That's right. That's right. <laughs> Well, wonderful, Rhett. Well, this has been great. And uh, thank you all for listening. Yeah, thank you. This has been the Real Estate Matters podcast produced by the Alabama Center for Real Estate. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Podbean, or just ask Alexa to play the Real Estate Matters podcast.